The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. All right, good morning again. If you have your Bibles or your apps, you can get those out to uh, follow along with us. If you don't have a Bible with you, we do have some in the seat in front of you, and we also have some as a gift for you at our Welcome Center that we would love to give you uh, so that you could take home. We're going to be continuing our series in the book of Matthew, and we'll be in Matthew chapter 3, looking at Jesus' baptism together. And so while you're turning there, I just want to make a couple opening remarks uh, about our passage that I hope will help us make better sense of the text as we're walking through it together. Uh, first, the baptism of Jesus is one of the few events in his life which each of the four gospel writers um, mention in their accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all mention Jesus' baptism. And of course, coming out of the Christmas season, we can think about even his birth is only mentioned in two of the four accounts. Mark and John leave out the birth narrative entirely. And you remember that each gospel writer is concerned with drawing out particular themes of Jesus's life and his ministry, particular ideas or teachings or events, uh, all of which are going to help the gospel writer address a particular audience and a particular issues that are arising uh, within their audience. And so the fact that the baptism is significant to all four gospel writers should clue us into the fact that this is a pretty significant passage for us if we want to understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. Which leads me to my second thought that I was surprised how little there is out there on this passage, how few sermons are preached, how small the sections are in the commentaries on this uh, section of Matthew. I read one commentary this week that Uh, spent about four paragraphs talking about this passage and then went into a three-page defense of infant baptism. And I was wondering, what exactly does infant baptism have to do with Jesus' baptism? Because after all, this is not Christian baptism, and we read in Acts that the disciples of John had to be baptized again. And so I wonder if in our haste to pass over uh, Jesus' baptism, it shows maybe our unfamiliarity or our lack of comfort with really thinking thoughtfully about some of the events of Jesus's life. Finally, uh, we really need to read this passage in light of what came before it and what comes after it. There are some passages in the Gospels that kind of a lot you can turn to and make sense of it. Just sort of with that passage, you think of maybe the Sermon on the Mount as an example. You don't really need to know as much before and after to make sense of it. But this passage, you really need to know what came before and what came after. And so last week in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 3, Charlie showed us how John the Baptist really set the stage for the coming of Jesus, for God himself, by paving the way through this baptism of repentance, And so you start to see then the tension that's going to be set up in our passage as Jesus comes to be baptized by John. And our passage ends in verse 17 with this great Trinitarian moment of Jesus being commissioned for his public ministry with the Spirit descending upon him and the Father pronouncing these words uh, over him. And in this way, we see probably the most spectacular commissioning service uh, that's ever been happened to anyone in all of human history. 
But commissioned for what exactly? Well, we see in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, commissioned not just for ministry, but to do battle with his sworn enemy, Satan. And so it is the same enemy or same spirit who comes down gentle like a dove in verse 17, that in chapter 4, verse 1, that drives him out into the wilderness to do battle with Satan. And so it's only after these three episodes of John preparing the way, Jesus' baptism, and then his battle with Satan in the wilderness that Jesus is prepared and commissioned for his public ministry that begins later in chapter 4. And so keep all of that in mind as we're working through Jesus' baptism together. In our time together, we're going to focus on uh, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And I really want to dial in our attention to two statements that are made in this text. The first is what Jesus says to John when he says that this baptism is necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. And the second statement is when the father pronounces these words of approval over his son with whom he is well pleased. And the big idea connecting uh, these two statements is that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness so that you and, I, you and I might know the full love and pleasure of God. And as we're working through this text, I think we'll see this has profound implications for our life, not only in our understanding of what Jesus has done for us, but our own obedience uh, and also our identity as a son or daughter of God. And so let's give our attention to the careful reading of God's word beginning in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would humble us as we sit under your word. Show us Christ this morning. Show us more of this beloved son of yours with whom you are well pleased. And we ask that you would give us assurance that in Christ, we are beloved sons and daughters with whom you are well pleased. Give us grace and understanding for our time, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So let's begin by looking at verse 15 and unpacking Jesus' statement here about fulfilling all righteousness. Last week, we saw that John is preparing the way for the Lord God himself by giving a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. This was a baptism which was necessary for both Jew and Gentile alike. One of the key themes of Matthew's gospel is that Jesus's mission is cross-cultural. No one is exempt from the need for Christ and the work that he is going to accomplish. His gospel is for all people. There is no exclusion. Both Jew and Gentile, religious and irreligious people alike are all being called to repentance and faith and to follow the Lord Jesus. And so John's baptism is one of repentance and forgiveness of sin, and yet he confesses that it cannot be compared to the baptism of the Lord who is to come, who will baptize not just with water, but with the Holy Spirit. 
And so I hope you feel the shock in the narrative for no sooner does John finish saying that than Jesus comes to be baptized by John. The Lord, the Lord God himself, the Messiah, what business does he have to come and be baptized by John? What business does the Lord have of being baptized with a baptism of repentance if he himself is sinless and has no need of repentance? You see the force of John's protest. He even tries to stop Jesus from being baptized. For he recognizes that in the sight of the Lord, he is humbled and recognizes himself, John, for who he really is. Although he may be the greatest of all the prophets, as Jesus will later say, he is still a man with iniquity and with sin and with no righteousness in himself. You come to me to be baptized? This idea of righteousness in the scriptures frequently has to do with obedience to the law of God. Earlier in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph is described as a just and righteous man, by which we are to conclude that he was earnestly seeking to obey God. In Matthew 5, while Jesus is talking about the law, he says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. He is, of course, talking about obedience to the law for which the scribes and Pharisees were so eager to boast in. But there is an important distinction that we can briefly make here. People like John the Baptist or Joseph or Mary, those who are described in a positive way as being just and righteous persons, they are earnestly seeking the Lord while humbly acknowledging their own sin and weakness. They acknowledge that if they are going to be counted as righteous at all, then ultimately it will not be because of what they have done, not because of anything in themselves, but because God has pardoned their offenses and given to them his righteousness. And this is very much unlike the Pharisees who, although they keep the law, they believe that it is because they are good and righteous within themselves. They think there is something special about them that makes them capable of obeying the law. You see, the attitude of our hearts makes all the difference in the world. And we see this contrast in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. For there it says in in verse 9 that the Pharisees trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And so they treated others with contempt. See, the human heart is naturally unaware of the weight of its own sin and iniquity. And thus we are unwilling to humble ourselves before God to acknowledge our need for his forgiveness and for his righteousness. But make no mistake, that does not mean that we are unconcerned with righteousness. We are just seeking it and creating new standards for law-keeping elsewhere. One scholar, uh, the atheist social psychologist Jonathan Haidt says that an obsession with righteousness is the default human position. And for some, that is found in the pursuit of the perfect family, or a career, or health, or diet, or politics. Because if we don't find our righteousness in God, we will no doubt look for it elsewhere, and it will always come back to trying to find righteousness within ourselves. And so how do you know if you're looking for your righteousness somewhere other than God? Well, think about the Pharisees. Their condition can be found 
to the degree that they look down with others, look down on others with contempt. That is where we will find our self-righteousness as well. Do you look down on Democrats as being uneducated? On Republicans? Do you look down on those who are lazy and who don't seem put together? On those who don't achieve as much as you? On those who aren't as healthy as you? On those who are healthier than you? Do your accomplishments give you a sense of entitlement? Perhaps you feel that you have the right to speak over others in a conversation. Wherever our contempt is found, there too is our self-righteousness. And it shows, it reveals that we have not grasped our own need for the righteousness of God. We have not yet been humbled. It has not yet sunk down deep into the deepest recesses of our identity. And so why? Why must Jesus be baptized by John to fulfill all righteousness? Jesus, being the Lord God, has no need of repentance nor forgiveness, for he already is righteous. Remember that Matthew, in chapter 2, verse 15, he tells us that Jesus is going to be the true Israel. He is going to succeed where they have failed. And by submitting to baptism, Jesus shows us the length that he is willing to go to identify with his people in their sin. He will fully do all that is required of them. The people need to repent, and Jesus counts himself among the transgressors, as Isaiah 53, 12 says. And so Jesus comes to repent. Since John is a prophet and leader to Israel, Jesus will submit to him whether he has need of repentance or not. You know, this week, Charlie and I at our staff lunch on Thursday, we were talking about this passage and we both realized that we had the same epiphany going through this text this week, independent of one another. One word jumped out to us in this passage that we had never considered before. You know what it was? Us. And we realized that we've been quoting Matthew 3.15 wrong for years because we always quote it as it's necessary for me to fulfill all righteousness or necessary that I fulfill all righteousness. But he doesn't say that, does he? He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What's going on there? Jesus is highlighting John's role in God's redemptive plan. And John, being a prophet and a leader to Israel and this means of repentance, God is using that. Jesus is submitting to that to fully show just the length by which he is going to go to identify with his people. By submitting to John as a leader, as a prophet in Israel and his baptism, Jesus is being counted as one of the transgressors, whether he has need of it or not. And this is the king we follow, as we read in Philippians 2. One who was willing to empty himself into the form of a servant, fully identifying with us in every way, yet he was without sin. And this should be deeply reassuring to us for this means that we serve a God who does not ask us anything of us, ask of us anything which he was not willing to do himself. He does not ask us to sacrifice where he has not already sacrificed. He does not ask us to face suffering where he has not faced suffering. He does not ask us to face temptation where he has not been tempted. He does not ask us to weep or to mourn where he has not weeped. 
we can approach his throne with confidence then, knowing that he hears us and understands us. Now, in what way, how does Jesus' baptism fulfill all righteousness? There's a few different ways that we can look at this. The Westminster Confession, which is a summary, a guiding document as a summary for what we believe uh, the Bible teaches. Uh, the Westminster Confession primarily looks at this through the lens of uh, Jesus' two natures, his humanity and his divinity. Another way we can look at Jesus' obedience here is through what, through what theologians have called uh, Jesus' active obedience and his passive obedience. His active obedience and his passive obedience. His active obedience consisted in all that he did to observe obedience to the law in his life. He perfectly obeyed the law in every respect. It is his, it is his active obedience which is in view here in verse 15. He submits to everything that is required of his people. It's his active obedience that's in view in passages like Galatians 4, where we read that he was born as one under the law to redeem those who are under the law. His passive obedience consisted in his paying the penalty of sin through his suffering and his death. He paid our debt. He rid us of the curse of death, which we were under when we were under the law. His passive obedience is in view in passages like 1 Peter chapter 2, which says he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's in his passive obedience that the curse and sting of the law are gone. And so through his passive obedience by paying our debt, his active obedience can be attributed to us. So by his obedience, the scriptures say, the many are made righteous through his passive and his active obedience. And so I want to try just for a minute to impress upon you the importance of understanding the full breadth of Jesus' obedience and fulfilling all righteousness for us. There has been, I think, in much of the church today, an emphasis on Jesus' passive obedience to the neglect of understanding his active obedience. We speak highly and often of Jesus paying the penalty for our sin, of ridding us of the curse of the law, but we study little of his active obedience. We study little of his earthly life and ministry. I mean, how many of you are more comfortable with the epistles of Paul than you are with the gospel letters? As a result, many of us, I think, fail to understand what obedience in our own lives begins to look like. We are united to Christ. We are in Christ. He has paid the penalty for our sin. He has lived this active and obedient life. Now, what does that mean for me? And so we fail to grasp the application of godly and ethical, faithful, biblical living. I recently finished a book titled Faith for Exiles. It's a summary of some of the latest research coming out of the Barna Research Group. You may have heard that name before. Uh, the purpose of this study was to look at young adults, 18 to 29-year-olds, and it was in this study where I realized I'm no longer a young adult, by the way. Um, it was in this study, uh, they looked uh, at these 18 to 29-year-olds who grew up in the church, who had professed faith in Christ, and it was to look at where are they today? Where are they today in their faith, and where are they at in their relationship to the church? 
The study tries to determine the practices and principles which created disciples who remained active and engaged in the church through their youth, through their teen years, and then on into adulthood. And so let me just get to the bottom line quickly for our purposes. One of their findings is that really only 10% of churched young adults agree that their churches are teaching them how to apply their faith to their lives, how to live godly, faithful, ethical Christian lives, how to live faithfully when they're surrounded by so many people who believe differently than they do, how to be faithful with sexual ethics in a world where gender and and, um, sexual identity has just sort of been thrown out the window, how to be a godly employee in the workplace, how to manage money, and so on. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness, both in his active and passive obedience, but we must be clear that just because Jesus has obeyed the law perfectly, that does not mean obedience is no longer of concern to us. Just because of the sting of the law is gone, the law is not irrelevant. Remember what Paul told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He said, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. I want you to imagine a young man who is infatuated with a young woman. But he's nervous. He's anxious. He's scared. That if he actually tells this young woman how he feels that she's going to reject him. Well, he finally musters up the courage to tell her and behold, to his surprise, she returns the affection. The young man is over the moon. He's been accepted by his love. But after the thrill of her approval wears off, he begins to let himself go. He no longer takes care of himself. He no longer invests in the relationship. He no longer pursues the woman, notices what she loves, notices what she appreciates, no longer desires to serve her. Unless she threatens to leave. And then he gets his act together for a time, but the cycle repeats itself. Now let me ask you in this parable, who does the young man really love? The woman or himself? Himself. And really the woman's purpose in his life is really to only serve as his object of validation. I fear this is how many of us view our relationship with God. We alternate between being anxious for his approval, scared that we might lose it, or we are apathetic to what it means to be in relationship with him. We profess our need for Christ's righteousness, and yet we still live as if we must earn it ourselves. And I think this exposes not just our self-righteousness, but it also exposes just how much we still have to learn about being a beloved child of God. And so let's look now at how our passage concludes. Jesus is baptized. John consents. Jesus comes up out of the water. And we see this great picture of the Trinitarian God at work. The Son is baptized, the Father speaks, and the Spirit descends. And there is much we could say about the role of the Spirit in this passage, but uh, time 
flies quickly, and I must cut those comments short. But I do want to highlight that it's not as if the Spirit descending means that Jesus was not filled with the Spirit before. This is not the first time that Jesus became Spirit-filled in his ministry. That would be impossible, and it would be a separation of his two natures, his human and his divine natures. But the Spirit coming down out of heaven is a sign of the Spirit's anointing. Jesus is being marked out as the Spirit bearer, who would become the Spirit baptizer. He brings in the age of the Spirit that would fulfill all of Israel's hopes. As Luke says in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus reads the words of Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. But for our purposes, I want us to look at what the Father says over the Son. The Father not only calls Christ the Son, but my beloved Son. And we get this, there are a few places in Scripture we get it, where we get a window into the dialogue of the persons of the Trinity. And here we get this wonderful window into the affection of the love that each member of the Trinity has towards each other. We see the depth and the height and the length of this eternal love that's impossible for us to comprehend, and yet it is the same love which Jesus prayed would define our love for one another. And so it's to our shame when our relationships are marked not by gentleness, but by quarreling, not by meekness, but by strength, not by service, but by dominance, not by humility, but with pride. The Father's affirmation of Jesus goes even further, for this is not just his beloved Son, but it's his beloved Son with whom he is well pleased. Matthew is writing at length to give us a full picture of who Jesus is as the true Davidic king, as the true Israel, as Emmanuel, and now as the unique and beloved Son of God. And this concerns you and I in that if we are united to Christ, if we have put our faith in him and we are found in him, God is pleased with us not in ourselves apart from Christ, but by being one with him, we are accepted and blessed in the beloved, in the Son of God, just as Ephesians chapter 1 tells us. The beloved Son came into the world to please the Father so that we might know that we are beloved and to receive God's fatherly good pleasure. As Jesus said in John 17, He wants us to know that the Father sent him and that the Father loved us even as he loved the Son. That's a profound statement. Do you have any sense this morning of just how profound that is for for our lives, what it means to be in Christ? It means, first of all, that Jesus is not the cause of God's love for us. Jesus is not the cause of God's love for us. He is the assurance of God's love for us. He is the proof of God's love for us. God so loved the world that he gave, predestined in love. And Jesus came into the world so that we would know just how loved by the Father we are. 
Jesus is the proof we need to know that God's love for us will never cease because it never really began. It's who God is. We were predestined in love, loved into existence by the Father, and now in the Son, our hearts are reoriented toward God. And we can begin to receive the full love of the Father in its fullness because we have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. It means, second of all, that we can have a proper view of love and obedience in the Christian life because it's no longer for us a means of earning righteousness, but the means by which we please our Father, whose love for us never changes, but who is pleased when we listen to him and obey. And this is why, and again in our Westminster Confession, it refers to the law for the Christian as a rule of life. It is a guide for living in our relationship with God. And finally, this means that we have received a new identity. It's a new identity which instills in us a new sense of worth and a new sense of value. We learn that we are the object of God's pleasure and the product of his love. Our self-esteem no longer comes from our own striving or what others say about us. Our sleepless nights and our anxiety begins to fade because we begin to learn what it means to rest in the love of the Father. And when you truly begin to grasp the significance of this new identity, there will be a certain power and a joyful new delight will come into your life that you did not know before. Grumbling is turned into gratitude because you've received a love that you know you could never earn. You're generous with praise and affirmation. Because you've received praise and affirmation from God and so other people are no longer a threat or competition to you. You're no longer quarrelsome with others because you have peace with God. Your self-oriented nature begins to work outward and becomes more other-oriented because you know the great length by which Jesus went to serve and identify with you. And it makes me sad to think that there are many in this room for whom the love of God is no longer a centering force, no longer a centering reality in your life. It makes me sad to think that there are many who have long forgotten the joy of God's fatherly love and pleasure. I feel that there are many in this room who know all the right answers, all the right doctrine, but for whom the love of God is no longer a transforming reality in their lives. The Puritan John Owen, he captured this sentiment when he said this, how few of the saints are acquainted with this privilege of holding communion with the Father in love. With what anxious and doubtful thoughts do they look upon him? What fears, what questionings there are of his goodwill and his kindness. At best, many think there is no sweetness at all in God towards us. Many think there is no love at all in God towards us except for what Jesus has persuaded God to give to us. It is true that Jesus alone is the way of communication, but the free fountain and spring of all love is in the bosom of the Father. 
So this morning, I want to call you to the one who loves you and who sent his son into the world so that you would know just how loved you are by the Father. As we see in Christ's willingness to submit and to serve and to fulfill all righteousness so that we might be made the righteousness of God so that we might know his love. And for some of us, that means laying down our pride in years or decades of religious service and admitting that we have forgotten the love of God. For some of us, we must confess our self-righteousness evidenced by our metallic hearts and the hard thoughts that we think about others and about God. And still for others, it's just a confession of apathy toward God and his commandments. So as we prepare to come to the Lord's table this morning, let me remind you this is not a table of condemnation, but it is a table of love. Christ has fulfilled all righteousness in his life, death, and resurrection for us to know God's love and to walk faithfully with him. And so we come to his table this morning, not out of fear, out of condemnation, but as a table of love and to have communion with him. If you have confessed Christ as your righteousness and you have resolved to lay down your own efforts for righteousness and your own self, I invite you to come and to partake of this meal freely as it is offered to you this morning. But if you have not confessed Christ as Lord, we would ask you not to partake of this meal this morning. And that's not because we're trying to be exclusive. We say this for your sake, because without Christ, if you have not confessed your need for Christ and his righteousness, then all religious activity is just a means of self-righteousness. That's not what this table is. And so instead, I'd invite you to pray and to ask God to give you a heart to see Christ and to know that he has fulfilled righteousness for you and to put your faith in him this morning. Let's pray. Father, we confess that as we study the baptism of your son, categories for how we think life works are blown up and we see our own great need for your righteousness to be humbled, not to find righteousness in ourselves. We also see how tempted we are to then neglect our own obedience and to walk faithfully with you. And we confess ultimately it comes down to a lack of understanding of what it means to be loved by you as our heavenly father. Lord, help us to see that our solution this morning is not found in more, just simply more faith, or simply more obedience, but by knowing you and knowing your grace and your kindness and your love. Minister to us now as we come to this table, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.